Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode five. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Stephen Grant's third session from the Christian Fellowship Weekend entitled, Love Your Enemies. The Lord challenged his people to be very different from the world. This subject is certainly a reminder of this. God bless. gospel please in chapter 6 for a reading Luke chapter 6 please yeah. so let's just read in Luke chapter 6 and we'll read from verse 27 But I say unto you which here love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the, the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye for sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. May the trust that God will bless the reading. Apparently, I mentioned that um, you need to have two men in your assembly with uh, guitars, and some of you thought I said beer. I think I would be relegated to the seat of the unlearned tomorrow. <laughs> Beards. <laughs> Just for the sake of clarity. So, um, having cleared that up, um, we want to come to this section of Luke chapter 6 and raise this issue of loving your enemies. Now, this is the same sermon, by the way, as Matthew 5 to 7. And this statement's always been a radical statement. It doesn't matter what age or uh, generation that you are from, historically, this is one of the great radical statements of Christianity. And I think it remains a radical statement because for many in our world today, 
uh, hatred is a virtue. And it is actually the basis upon really so much in society that if there is love, there must be hatred. And it, the idea is just this, that if you love one group, then you automatically must have the opposite um, toward another group. So let me give a kind of modern example, because the Jews hated the Romans, and the Jews also hated the Herodians. And they'd, uh, they'd uh, developed a real hatred for people who violated their law and traditions. I suppose in our day as Christians, um, some people hate Muslims or maybe hate people who are pro-choice abortionists or hate people who have got different political opinions or views. Hate has become a virtue. Intolerance of people is on the rise, not what they believe, but of people is on the rise. So that in our society back home, um, it's like trench warfare on so many issues. People dig a hole and jump in, and then they stay in there, and they fight with each other. So you come to this expression, and my point is just this. This is counterintuitive. This is going against the idea of culture in our Western society. Love your enemies. It also, by the way, seems to be at odds with Old Testament scriptures. It's one of the great criticisms that people bring about the Bible, which is to say that the Old and New Testament seem to have very different tones and themes. And, for example, there are instructions relating to genocide in the Old Testament and for war. And you have the concept of uh, God's judgment being brought to bear upon nations upon peoples. And how does that, how's that reconciled with the love of God? But you need to understand that in the Old Testament, it's a completely different context because in the Old Testament, Israel was functioning as a theocracy. And God utilized that tool that they had upon earth, which was Israel, his people, and he used them often to judge ungodliness on the earth. He also, by the way, used Assyria and Babylon to do the very same thing. He used Egypt on occasion to do the same thing, and Persia. And he used them as tools of his judgment upon wickedness that existed upon earth. But then you come into the Psalms, and, you know, I've been reading through the Psalms just in my daily reading in the morning, and you're coasting along with some nice Psalms and some uplifting thoughts, and then you come across what we would in Scotland call an absolute belter, um, Psalm 109 is one of those. I'll just quote it to you. And it's like, whoa, you know, this guy seems to be upset. So he's calling upon the Lord in Psalm 109, verse 8 to verse 15. And this is, this is his prayer, the psalmist, about his enemies. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg let them seek their bread out of their desolate places, etc., etc., etc. It's as if he's calling fire from heaven down upon these people. He wants action. He wants judgment. He wants them to experience poverty, indignation, the whole, the whole thing. And there are many psalms like that, the imprecatory psalms they're called. 
when the judgment of God is called down by the psalmist upon his enemies. Well, how do you reconcile that with the love of, the love of your enemies? It's interesting that in that Old Testament context that the psalmist doesn't go out and do the judging. So he's not locked and loaded and going out to slaughter people himself, but he's calling down God's judgment mainly because the people were dishonoring the name of the Lord and blaspheming his name and so forth. When we come to our context, we very often are in a context of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And that's true. And you see this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about that experience in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, when this rich young ruler um, comes to the Lord Jesus and he asks him the question and he gets the answer and he walks away from Christ. So let us not forget that it says about him that looking upon him, the Lord Jesus loved him. Now let's not water this down. That man was a self-righteous, materialistic, non-repentant, unbelieving rebel. That's what he was. And looking on him after he rejected Christ, it says the Lord loved him. For God so loved the world. I love to think this, that the love of God is an indiscriminate love. The love of God is an unconditional love. It is a love of absolute pure compassion on guilty sinners. For God so loved the world. God's love for the world was also a love that brought a warning. His warning was, if you will not repent, you will perish. And the love of Christ displayed to a world that he lived amongst was a love that would provide salvation and bring a warning to the people. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God's love for his creatures was a message that provides salvation, but also commands repentance. Both together. Matthew 11 verse 28 to 30, it was a love that invited people to himself. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus, he lived out, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, and you see it in the life of Christ. And so he loves what we would think are the worst of sinners, but actually the worst of sinners, it seems that he loved, were the Pharisees and the religious hypocrisy. They actually received the greatest condemnation in the preaching of Christ. 
And when you come to Luke chapter 6, what we're speaking about as we come to this text is the great standard of love, the high standard of love that the Lord Jesus is speaking about here when he says, love your enemies. It is the love that God loves with. It's a love, and we read this, which is to the ungrateful and to wicked men. That's who God loves. He loves the ungrateful and he loves the wicked men. So the Lord Jesus stands in his trial. I don't know if you've ever imagined this. I'm sure you have. At the unusual tension in the narrative. When Christ is standing, the judge of all the earth, before a judge on the earth, and he stands having been bound, the one who cannot be bound is bound. And it tells us that they struck him on the cheek. What does the Lord Jesus do? He does not retaliate. Peter will speak about this in his commentary in his epistle. Mind you, neither did he turn the other cheek. But it's interesting that the Lord Jesus, having been struck on the cheek, then confronted the illegality of what had just taken place. If I have spoken wrongly, John 18, bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? It's interesting when you look at the love of Christ as he loved his enemies. He was generous. He wasn't greedy. But he did not walk around having literally given away every scrap of clothing that he possessed. You see, the implementation of these scriptures should not be taken with a strict, literal interpretation of them. But rather, when you take the language of giving your coat and so forth, it means that we don't interpret them strictly, literally, but in the spirit in which they're taught, but still don't take away from the cutting edge of them and water it down to something that it isn't. I don't know if you have any enemies. Some of you are smiling, so maybe you do. The likelihood is in life you will have enemies. The Lord Jesus would not have taught his disciples this because he assumed that his followers would have enemies. Probably the, case, the, the, the fact is that we have very few enemies that are unbelievers. Most of our enemies tend to be believers. That's probably a failure on our part because the Bible tells us that if we live as we ought to, then in this world we will have tribulation. We don't really have much tribulation in this world, probably because we're not living as we ought to. And so we perhaps might have enemies. We ought not to have enemies because of bad behavior on our part. Peter again speaks about that, that if you suffer having done wrongfully, and it's almost as if Peter says, well, you know, too bad, too bad. That is not pleasing to God. 
But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, that's a different thing. So, for example, if you're in high school and you don't have any friends just because, excuse the expression, some of you will get this from Scotland, you're just an absolute pain in the neck and you are a very bad friend to other people, so you've got no friends. You know, you can't keep friends. It's got nothing to do with the fact you're a Christian. You might attribute it to that, but it's just really because you're a nasty gossip or it's because you're unkind and selfish or it's because you never put your hand in your pocket and you're always taking from folk. So you just don't have any friends. You're never going to have friends. So that has got nothing to do with this. So you may have enemies. If you do have enemies, then it would need to be because that you're living righteously. Not self-righteously, righteously. Holding firmly to God's truth in a Christ-like fashion. You're likely going to have enemies of some sort. The Lord Jesus says, love your enemies. You know, it doesn't get any easier when he commands you to, you know, love God. Most of us are quite comfortable with that. We think we could do better, but we're on track. Love your neighbor. It's fine, you know, you maybe invite them for dinner once a month and stick a track through their door. You're getting there and, you know, you're feeling okay. Loving your enemies is just like, hold on, this is going too far. Loving your enemies it was a difficult thing for him to teach, for those to receive it. The word is agape. Again, that word that I've spoken about, that is committed to the highest good of the person that you're loving. And so, he's saying this, that loving is, you're back to the hug thing, loving is not necessarily, you know, this whole emotive sort of thing, but it is seeking, actively seeking the best, actively seeking the greatest good for the object of your love. So when you have enemies, the Lord is saying you ought to make decisions in your life that will result in the greatest good for that individual. Now, sometimes that is calling them to account. Sometimes it is calling them to repentance. Sometimes it is repenting yourself. Sometimes it's giving. Sometimes it's not giving. But your, your actions, intentional actions, are done with this in view— that they will be better, that they will have this greatest good. It's positive in verse 27. He's beginning to now get into the detail of it. He says, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. It's not enough to refrain from doing evil, but rather it is to actively do good. So you could take the position and say, you know, they can't stand me and we've got this hostile thing going on in the assembly. Let's just bring it right down. And you know, say this is the situation, let me just illustrate. And so if you're there and they're there, not actually you two, but just imagine. And if you're there and you're there, it would mean this, that when you both stand up, you don't go that way, you go that way. And it's a race to the back to see who can go first so you don't, need to, you don't need to speak. And sometimes we're very good at that. It's the turning away of eye contact, 
before there needs to be a conversation. It's the subtle passive aggression. And you say, but they're my enemy. And I don't want to do them any harm. The Lord Jesus said, you're only halfway there. You need now to do them good. So loving them is not refraining from harming them. Loving them is positively and actively doing good toward them. It's not easy. So he's going to actually explain a bit about what he means. So in verse number 28, he'll say, the way that you speak to that individual, I want to talk to you about that. Bless them that curse you. How does this work out then? Um, bless them which curse you. So, okay, let's kind of fast forward into our phone age. And uh, you know that there has been a whole group chat about you. Where someone breaks confidence and tells you, and makes a mistake and includes you in the chat, which is a disaster, um, and all the rest of it. And so, anyway, you hear that you've been gossiped about, you've been spoken about. So, your response to that is what? The Lord says, bless them which curse you. If a person verbally attacks you, are you willing to respond with kind words? That's what this looks like and sounds like. But then he will go beyond that and he will say, and pray for them which despitefully use you. So I suppose when you think about this, he's asking them to do what he would do in a future day when he hangs on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It hasn't been that long since they were stretched over him with a mallet in their hand, nailing him to a tree. It wasn't that many hours since they were baying for his blood and when they were treating them in a shocking fashion. You go into the book of Acts and you say, is it possible for anyone other than the Lord to do such a thing? What about the martyrdom of Stephen? He's Christ-like when he is, his body is being broken by rocks, smashed to pieces, and he's praying, don't commit this sin to their charge. He is interceding for those who were mistreating him. That's what it looks like to love your enemies. So, when he's speaking about how to speak and how to pray, then notice in verse 29, he's talking about how to react. So, unto him that smiteth thee in the one cheek, offer also the other, and him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Now, it's a wrong interpretation of this to say that a Christian should never assert his rights within a society. 
because the Apostle Paul did that on occasion. And so, for example, there were occasions when Paul claimed and asserted his Roman citizenship. And that in itself prevented him from being assaulted further than he had been. And so, biblical love does not mean that you become a doormat and people can just abuse you at will. Now, let me give a very particular example of this. It does not mean within a marriage relationship that a wife must silently endure physical or other abuse from a husband. She has rights within the society for her protection. That God has ordained the authorities to actually implement. That's part of what the authorities should do before God for her protection. And so in those circumstances, she doesn't turn the other cheek. She implements her rights within the society and she reports them to the authorities. That is her Christian husband, by the way. And he needs to answer within the law of the land for his violence towards his wife. There's no question about that. So this turning the other cheek is not enduring that type of behavior in that type of context. It's just wrong. His sin must be confronted and he must bear the consequences of his actions. When Peter says this, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Mark the context of that. He's suffering for righteousness, and he's suffering the hands of the ungodly. And, and you know, there will be times, and there are so many times throughout our world, when the Lord's people, as I speak, when the Lord's people are enduring this very thing, and they're suffering indignities, and they're suffering being reviled, and they're suffering violence, and the destruction of the properties, and they're enduring it for the name of Christ. And they are not shouting abuse. They're not responding in like. They're not giving as good as they get. But they are, re they are suffering like Christ did and committing it to him that judgeth righteously. Because mark this, there is coming a day of accounting for those who abuse the Lord's people on earth. There isn't a single blow that has gone unnoticed in heaven, and there will be an accounting. So for us as believers, he says, love your enemies. I wonder if we are capable of doing such a thing as the Lord's people. As I've been speaking, you've been thinking about that person who's your enemy. And you know who it is. They wouldn't be violent towards you, but all that kind of low-level stuff, that kind of low-level passive stuff that goes on, between believers. There's one way to stop it. 
love your enemies. Love your enemies. Break the cycle. Break the cycle by doing the opposite, not the same. Love them. Pray for them. Speak well of them when they speak evil of you. It's radical. It's unusual. It's counterintuitive. It goes against pride. It goes against the whole natural instinct to establish yourself. How dare they? I'm not taking that. That's ridiculous. All that kind of stuff. He says, put it to one side. Break the cycle. Love your enemies. Not just in word. You know, such and such said that, but I love them. And then you, <laughs> your next two or three sentences show that you don't. An opportunity to show them kindness. and to sh- There's nothing more difficult to reconcile as if you have been nasty to someone and they are kind in return. It's a hard thing to deal with. The Bible actually tells us it's like heaping coals of fire in their head. It just turns the heat up right in their head and makes it harder for the cycle to continue. Oh, the Lord Jesus practiced this in his life. The disciples were taught it. Peter, put your sword up in the garden. We're not here to to wage war against our enemies. The Lord Jesus touches the ear of Malchus. And where there was violence, he shows kindness. It's astounding. It's astounding. It would be no less astounding in your relationship with an individual if being the recipient of hostility and of hatred. It's a very strong word. That you were able to Show kindness and love. Best standing. When we think of the Lord Jesus, you say, well, do you know what? That's okay, Stephen, but you know, you have no idea what they say about me. I had a conversation with one of you just a few minutes ago, and I was saying, you know, sometimes uh, some of our young folk would come to me with their woes and tell me how terribly they've been treated and miscalled and all the rest of it. And sometimes I have to say to them, so what? So what? And I don't mean that as a rebuke. I mean it as a question. So what? Someone has been nasty to you. And then what? Sometimes we need to take the focus of the kind of pity party and stand up and say, so what? Just get on with it. That's our kind of family motto, just get on with it. And very often in life, that is the case. And when someone speaks ill of us, we become all introverted and angst-ridden, and we forget the example of Christ and his people in the New Testament. You say, well, do you know, if that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you in life, that someone doesn't like you, it's not going to be too bad. You'll still have a house. 
when you're waking up in the morning and climb into a car and you'll still be eating food and you still have clothes to put in your back and I don't see any marks in your body. Let's contextualize this. It may be unpleasant. No one likes to live under the frown of someone. But in the big scheme of things, what exactly are our burdens that we bear in our Western culture and assembly life that are so hard to bear? Really? That doesn't excuse some of the behavior, mind you. But surely we can love our enemies. Surely we can show kindness when we're not getting physically beaten and imprisoned and tortured for the cause of Christ. When all we're getting is a few names called and people don't like us or invite us to their house. And that's it. That's it. You know, I, I found traveling to some areas of the world where life is a bit different from here, illuminating and somewhat chastening. My family used to hate it because when they were young, I used to go to Sri Lanka in December when the war was on there. And you know, it, it was a, I had to mature in my understanding and appreciation of this, but I used to leave Sri Lanka and the East Coast of Sri Lanka and fly home. So I'd be bumping along this minibus from the East Coast, um, away in a place called uh, Batikala and different places, and it was dirt poor, just dirt poor. And the people are in the sharp end of a long-running civil war, and just to add to their misery, the tsunami hit them as well. And so we would go there, and you're sitting with folk who have got nothing. The assembly, the gospel halls made of banana leaves, um, literally. I've never heard the gospel halls over there anyway in the East Coast of Sri Lanka at the time. But we're sitting there, and, you know, they've got nothing. But they're still getting harassed. And they're getting persecuted. So I would fly home just before Christmas and decide that Christmas was cancelled. That was it. That's it, cancelled. This is ridiculous and all this kind of stuff. My kids, oh no, he's going to Sri Lanka in December again. It's a nightmare. Um, so I had to kind of work that to be a bit more mature about it. But you see, there's this idea that it does actually help quite a bit to put our lives into context and to think a wee bit more contextually about what we endure for the sake of Christ. It's not much, to be honest. Not really. I think there's coming a day in our country where that's going to change. It may come to yours too. And I think that to stand up for the cause of Christ is going to be a bit of a shock for us. To be subjected to the full glare of satanic hostility, which is yet to come, without any legal protection or civil rights or anything like that. Who's going to give up their job because they won't sign up to a standard of morality and they won't sign, sign it, you lose your job. Who runs a business and they won't sign up to a code of conduct for suppliers that they are going to agree to certain standards of morality and all that kind of stuff and you lose all your contracts? Who isn't going to get a mortgage because they will not sign up 
to the bank's code of morality. It's no longer finance. It's coming. There's no doubt it's coming. In our country, it's there to a great degree, especially in the contractual thing. The big multinationals, they want a certain, um, they have a certain standard and conduct and statements, and if you're going to do business with them, you need to sign to them. Or they won't supply, you won't have a contractual relationship. If you work for our government, it's coming a day when you will have to participate in all these movements and all the rest of it. Wear your rainbow lanyards and so on. All that's coming. And then there will be the active persecution. I don't think it's far away. And then we'll really be tested. Love your enemies. Do good to them who are bringing destruction upon you. And then we may look back, believe it or not, with some fondness to some of the things that we had to endure in our day. Love your enemies. Well, you know, if folk are talking about you, there is actually biblical procedures for dealing with that. You sh we shouldn't be talking about each other. We shouldn't be showing such unchristian behaviors and conversation to each other anyway. We should actually be treating each other with respect and dignity in a Christ-like fashion. We should be able to discuss differences without falling out and name-calling and all that sort of business. Sadly, we don't. So the challenge is, will I be willing to love my enemy in a Christ-like fashion? Break the cycle. Just break the cycle of hostility and of animosity that sometimes exists. And so Christ has said, love God. It's at the core. Love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies and positively do good to them who would harm you. I trust that God will bless his word to us. Let's just pray and conclude our session.